There's the real thumb. Do I have the fake thumb? Yes, fake thumb is up, and so the real thumb. And I can take the glasses off because I cannot see with them on. Really fast, before I get started, uh, I got an email from John from Pennsylvania, David. He wanted to know how to find Big John. Hi, Big John. Hope you're listening. How to find the guy that sang the song, the Ecclesiastes 12 song. He he wanted to see what else he did. Now, I know the guy that sang the song is not the composer. They've done the saints. Uh, yes, I just look up his name on. Yeah, but I don't know his name. And uh, it's uh, listed on the um, on the end of every every sermon. Oh, it is, huh? Uh, yes, it is. Okay, so you can just look up that name. And uh, yeah, I don't recall it offhand, but uh, he has his own website. He's really good. Yeah, he, he's amazing. I Yeah, that's cool. Okay, well, at least I now know. I've been meaning to ask that for a couple of weeks, and I keep forgetting because dementia. Yeah, what can I do about it? Okay, really fast. I don't see anything. That is the double negative. I see nothing that does not conform to Ezekiel 38 to this point. I don't. There's not a single thing that doesn't conform. The Syrians being part of the mercenary forces that are moving up into Russia to help destroy the Ukraine, um, they are absolutely predicted to do that kind of thing. And so here they are doing it. And the fact that the Crimean Peninsula and Odessa and the different ports along the Black Sea have to be under the control of Magog, uh, that is happening. So there's your your battle now over the Donbass region, which will allow that. So again, let me repeat it. Everything conforms to Ezekiel 38 to this point. The spoils, the fact that the, there's a billion barrels of oil in the Golan Heights. And, and Putin is doing something that is economic. He want, he's doing something because his country is falling way behind Europe, China, Japan. His economy is getting smaller and smaller, the, the EU. And so he's trying to compete and he needs uh, as much oil as he can get. That's the best possibility he has to restore his economic strength. And if he has economic strength, then he has militarized strength. And so that's what he's doing. Exactly like Ezekiel 38 says, in my view. Okay, how about that? Really fast. April the 10th, 2022. Uh, Lecture discussion number 170 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and Genesis 15. And here we go again, Genesis 15. The, uh, you can call ourselves the intrepid, or the intrepid Eclipsidian platoon, I guess. Uh, we're going to attempt to resolve Genesis 15 by we, I mean, yes, we, all of us are going to try to do it, and, and that's a venerated objective. Uh, but it's also a endeavor of futility. Genesis 15 is a triune passage, which means we're mere human beings. We can only see dimly the triunity. That's 1 Corinthians 13.12. We're going to have to uh, await the Deuteronomy 34.10, the face-to-face, before we can fully understand Genesis 15. We get to see face-to-face at some point. Jeremiah 31.31-34 and Hebrews 10.16. That's when God writes into the hearts everything that he has put in his Bible. And, and we have it completely. Bible teachers are now obsolete along with pilots. Fortunately, I've only, I'm not a pilot. But there'll be, there'll be a time when the, there is no need for anyone to teach anyone because it is, we have this face to face and we have this writing into our hearts. And that, and now the knowledge of the Lord. 
the, the knowing the Lord is an act of God for all of the redeemed, all of the ones who believe. And that's what, that's something that has been promised to happen. And, and so knowing the Lord, and notice the emphasis on no, no, because last Sunday, gosh, I'm struggling already. I'm having trouble. Last Sunday, lecture number 169, the implications of the capacity to know when the fact that we know things is an incredibly, incredible truth. It's a monumental exercise, knowing. Knowing is a result of a consciousness. Uh, knowing is attached to believing. The ability to believe things requires knowing what, you, what it is you are believing. And belief and will, of course, are inseparable, which is why the question of Abraham at Genesis 15:8 is so incredibly amazing. And Abraham said, Lord God, how shall I know? By what shall I know is another translation of that. By what shall I know? How shall I know that I will inherit or possess it? How can I know that I will possess it? It's so profound. There's only one word that is translated there. Uh, one word that occurs only in this uh, in Genesis 15. That tells us the uh, the possession. Genesis fifteen eight now cannot be isolated from Genesis fifteen six. They are two parts, obviously. And Abraham believed God, and God accounted it, which is reckoned or thought. God thought it to Abraham for righteousness. And again, I've said it twice now. When will I possess it, or that I will? How shall I know that I will possess it? Uh, and God accounted it or thought it to Abraham for salvation. The it is not in the text. The Hebrew does not have it in the text. It's implied, but it's not there. So, so obviously, we have to look at it this way. The it at 15.8 is the salvation of 15.6. And the it of Genesis 15.6 is, is attached to the belief. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord thought it as salvation for Abraham. And so we have the believing then of Abraham now coupled to the knowing of Genesis 15.8. That's how you get those. Uh, and it is almost like a Z if you want to think of it that way. You can, you can track it out that way. Just understand 15.6, 15.8 attaches salvation to belief, belief to knowing. And here we go. Now, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Hebrews 10, 16, alongside of Galatians 3. In fact, the entirety of Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 4. Uh, that's where the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul does not provocate. Salvation is a belief process. You've heard me say that hundreds if not thousands of times. If it were in any way otherwise, then it's not a promise. And it clearly is a promise, Galatians 3.18. For if the salvation is of the law, then it is no longer a promise. That's why Galatians 3 is so tied into Genesis 15. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. That's Genesis 15 spelled out for us in Galatians. Galatians 3.18. What are Galatians? I should have some Galatians. Hmm. It's going to get worse, folks. There's no, I used to say it's going to get worse before it gets worse. That's absolutely what's going to happen here. 
God gave it, Genesis 15, to Abraham by promise. Genesis 15, I can't say that enough. The law is a curse, Galatians 3, 10 through 14 says. So, Abraham did not get the law. He got salvation. Those that add a curse to the promise of salvation, because that's what they do. They try to bring law and salvation and law and grace. They want to put them together. And there is no possibility you can do that with Scripture in my view. And I think it's obvious that's the case. As I said last week, nobody ever reads Galatians 3. And they never read uh, Genesis 15. And they never put it all together to see what really is being said there. So those that add a curse, which is the law, to the promise of salvation through faith, Galatians 3.24, Galatians 3.2, Galatians 3.11, they're bringing a curse, which is death, to the promise, the covenant of eternal life. So that's what they're adding. And they know it. They don't care. I've argued, and I stopped arguing, because they love this position. I said many years ago, people love to be wrong. And you can't stop them. There's nothing you can do. You bring something, they don't care what your argument is. They love what they have, and they're not going to ever leave it. But again, to repeat, if you're bringing, you're adding the curse of the law to the promise of salvation through faith, then you're bringing the curse of death to the promise and the, to the covenant of eternal life, which makes no sense. But yet it's what is done. For today, if I accomplish this one only thing, Genesis 15 cannot be sequestered from Galatians 3. When you're reading Galatians 3, you are in Genesis 15. The Holy Spirit who was at Genesis 15, he was actually there. Duh. Uh, he, through Paul, the apostle, placed Galatians 3 side by side with Genesis 15. He, it's obvious Genesis 3, I'm sorry, Galatians 3, 6 through 9, and Galatians 3, 16 through 18. That is Genesis 15. The law was given for one purpose, he says. Paul says through the Holy Spirit, Galatians 3.24. And that is to bring us to Christ that we might be saved by the law. No, that's not what it says. We might be saved by faith. Faith is belief. Belief is knowing. We are to come to Christ with humility. Galatians 6, 1, Exodus 20, 22 through 26. Exodus, make sure I got that right because I never know for sure. Exodus 20, 22 through 26 is the law of the altar. And the, the law of the altar says one thing very clearly. We're not supposed to build the altar. Don't build the altar. You don't use hewn stone, nor shall there be any steps to the altar of God. So you can't build steps and you can't even build the altar. You can't touch the stones. We have nakedness, he says in, in Exodus 20. You don't, you don't climb up on the altar because you're naked. Do not think that you can stand, that you can climb, go up steps to the altar of Christ. Those symbols are doing what? That's right. One's, that's, the altar is the symbol of grace, faith, belief, gift, promise. The work of the hands, the making of steps, the climbing up on the altar, those, that's the opposition. That's the symbol of law and works theologies. And you can't, he says specifically, don't do it. Christ is the altar of Exodus 20, 22 through 26. Christ cannot be built. I don't care how hard you work, you're not adding anything to Christ, ever. You have nothing to add. 
mankind just is prohibited from doing this. We're naked and we need to know it. That's what I mean by humility. Have some humility. I've never met, I've met people, bless their hearts, have told me, I haven't sinned for two weeks. And I just said, you lied. I haven't sinned for a year, they say. My sins are not like your sins, they will say. I've heard that hundreds of times. It isn't true. Have humility. Humility. You are coming naked to God. And, that, and as soon as you see nakedness, because he brings it up in Exodus 20, 22 through 26 in the law of the altar. I need to keep repeating that. When you see nakedness, where are you in the Bible now? Yeah, absolutely. You're Genesis three ten through 11. Adam and Eve knew that. They knew that they were naked. What does that mean? We don't we have such a poor understanding of, of the Bible. Whenever you're going to have a definition of the nakedness of Adam and Eve in Genesis three, ten through eleven, you have to read the law of the altar first, Exodus twenty, twenty two through twenty six. Use the definition that is there in Exodus twenty, twenty two through twenty six to now describe what nakedness means in Genesis three, ten through eleven. Who told you that you were naked? Remember that? Obviously, Satan told them that they were naked. Or they told themselves they were naked. That's the only two choices. That takes on a great significance now, once you understand what's going on in in Exodus 20, 22 through 26. And and it deserves that. It deserves the great significance that is there. Because there's a grace element, there's a gift element, there's a promise element in the nakedness. That's the only way you can get salvation when you're naked is somebody has to do what for you? How do you get clothed if you're naked and you can't clothe clothe yourself? Somebody has to give you the clothes and put the clothes on you. Well, that's grace. That's a belief system. It's not a work system. There's no work here in salvation. And that's magnificently significant. Being displayed by Adam, he knew it. Obviously, he knew it. Uh, Genesis 3.10. And so think that way instead of this usual stupid. Can I say stupid? Okay. This usual stupid commentary that prevails with the nakedness of Adam and Eve. It's it is childish material. I see it all the time. No understanding of what's, what nakedness means to God. Obviously, my goal for this lecture today was to bludgeon everyone with Galatians three. That's my big plan as it relates to Genesis 15, something that's going to continue for the coming weeks because that's just the way it goes. The belief, the knowing, the will ramifications or the entanglements of belief, knowing and will. We'll go over that again and again and again because understanding that belief and knowing and free will are all tied together is very, very critical information. God, without controversy, declares that mankind and the angels have the capacity to know and to willingly believe, uh, to manifest joy and sorrow as God himself does. We can, we can do a lot of things that God does. He has joy. He has sorrow. He has will. He has consciousness. We have all of those elements in us. So do the animals. He does say these things. God does repeatedly. And guess where the thing, where the place he says it the most is. If you raised your hand and said Genesis 15, you get a cookie. Genesis 15 is loaded with those three uh, elements, belief, knowing, and will. But I do have another, uh, some might say, diabolical intention. This is where I go, 
<laughs> and that would be Galatians 3.19. Galatians 3.19 is incredible. Everything in the Bible is incredible. But like I said, no one reads Galatians 3. I don't know why. When I say no ones, I mean none of the people who have a works-based theology. Galatians 3.19, guess what it is? If you're reading it really fast, it's the immortality of animals verse. It's really fantastic, which is why I'm so interested in it, as you might think. And it connects to Romans 5.14. It's the those who had not sinned verse in Galatians 3.19. And here's what it says. What purpose does the law serve? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed should come. Until the seed. Capital S. The seed, of course, is Christ. Because of the transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. That's amazing. Because the first thing you've got to ask is, I've got, who's the mediator in the context there? Most people would assume that it is Moses. And so the law is, comes through the angels into the hand of Moses. Angels were, according to Galatians 3.19, angels are involved, were involved in the dispensation of the Mosaic law. Immediate questions are what now? How did that happen? How are they doing it? And why are they doing it? And again, give you a couple of verses. Acts 7.53, Hebrews 2. <coughs> 2, 2. <coughs> Excuse me. So now, in order to even begin Galatians 3.19, it's going to be required that once again we find all of the pieces. And there are lots of pieces here. And first up, shock of all shocks is Galatians 3.18. How's about that for getting all the big money? For if the inheritance salvation is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. God gave salvation is what that's saying. It seems simple, but here's a phrase we're going to use for the next few weeks. The gate is wide. The other side has a huge amount of people going through their gate. The gate that says that God gave salvation to Abraham by promise is a narrow gate. Now you know the verse, right? Last Sunday, uh, I, I, energy and time was devoted to Genesis 15:7. God says to Abraham, I brought you out, I gave you this. Now I've left some words out on purpose, because HTRP. I brought you out. I gave you this. The fundamental question of Genesis 15:7 is to correctly define what the Lord God fully meant by "I brought you out and I gave you this." What did you? What did He bring you out of? And what did He give you? What is the this? What is the this that was given? Where is the one brought out? Where's the brought out place? Hopefully everyone concluded that what we were talking about there, you were, we are brought out of sin and death and given eternal life, saved from death and given life. And all of Genesis 15 explains how this is done and why God does it. And many of you have already noticed the similarity of Genesis 15:7 to Exodus 22. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. And we know the Pharaoh has a typology to Antichrist, and we know that Egypt has a typology to a place of sin and bondage and death. And that is what Egypt and the Pharaoh contribute. And those words spoken by God aloud to the nation of Israel, they are before, they precede the revealing or the giving of the law. So right before he gives the law, he says this to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. So he's saying to them the same thing that he says to Abraham, I brought you out of sin and death. And the next thing that he does is he has Moses revealing or giving of the law. Giving is not necessarily the right word there. They'll say it all the time. I use the word revealing the law. And that's not a coincidental thing. There is no coincidental capability or no incidental conditions at all in omniscience. It's not possible, as you know. So now I have this cohesion between the promise of Abraham and the law of Moses. They fit together. And that is exactly what they do. And that's exactly what the Bible tries to tell us. In Galatians 3, the Abrahamic covenant was established on the belief of Abraham. If there is no belief, there is no covenant. The law of Moses, however, is no, has no belief in it at all. It is a works-based conditionality. Abraham was given an unconstrained, unbounded, guaranteed, free, pledged document. A lot of redundancies there. Moses was delivering a restrictive dependency, a provisional document. Dims the choices. Which one would you take? Which one would you choose? The, the gate is wide for those who choose the provisional document. The gate is narrow. I used to say there's only one, and it's true. I should say it more times. There's only one religion in the history of man that says that salvation is free. All the rest of the religions say that salvation is earned. The gate is wide. The gate is narrow. It's, uh, why do so many choose a workspace system? And it's overwhelming. The percentages are ridiculous. And, and you can tell there's only one teaching, one doctrine in the history of man that says salvation is freely given by God based on belief and faith. All the others overwhelmingly workspace. It's crucial that... Um, that this be understood, Galatians 3, 3.19. Galatians 3.19 is referring to the contrast. All of Galatians 3 is referring to the contrast between the Abrahamic promise and the conditionality of the Mosaic law. Uh, and again, Leviticus 11.45, Micah 6.4, Deuteronomy 7.8. They're all other passages that contribute to the subject of Galatians 3. Now, Passover is coming, right? When is it? Is it Sunday or Saturday? Do you remember? Do you know? I think that it is Sunday, but I'm not positive about that. Uh, we'd have to see. But we have the Jews, the Passover, the Jewish Passover songs, the Dayenu, begins with God bringing them out of Europe. Europe. Gosh. Bringing them out of Egypt. Oh, it is happening to me. Is it Saturday? Okay. So on Saturday, the Dayenu will be sung, and it begins with God bringing the Israel nation out of the out of Egypt, out of bondage, sin, and death that Egypt represents. 
So obviously, when he says, I brought you out and gave you this, that is a significant statement from the Lord God of creation to his nation of Israel. And it is identical to what he said to Abraham, identical mostly to what he said in Abraham in Genesis 15. <coughs> so we see that. And of course, the nation of Israel will say that they are Abrahamic. So that would make sense. As we gather, and so what he did, again, let me just barrel away here. What he did to, to Abraham in Genesis 15 is what he does with, it, with the nation of Israel. Not an accident. Okay, as we gather the components, we are required by judicial uh, precepts. So legal precepts. We have to do this. We have to make a list. Because it's required. List makers are going to make lists. That's what we do. Genesis 3.18 gave us the law is a poison to the Abrahamic covenant. I'm sorry, Galatians 3 says that. In that if, if, uh, if, if, uh, wow, I'm not that tired. The law is a poison to the Abrahamic covenant. That's what Galatians says. And that if the law is added to the promise, the promise is now rendered malignant, adulterated, and is no longer a vow. As soon as you add law, you add poison. It's the, the, the promise now is contaminated beyond restitution. It's no longer a promise as soon as law is introduced. And note the parallels that the leprosy or the leprous spot that leprosy has to do, which, to, to, to do with that which is clean. If I have one spot of leprosy, I am unclean. The same thing is true for sin to innocence. If I have one sin, I have no innocence. The law is the same to grace. So those who say law and grace are not saying, you might as well eliminate the word grace. It's just the law. So our law, so we have a list. Let me get my list. We have this element of law and promise that is in Genesis 15, Galatians 3. We have, uh, what's the purpose of the law? Purpose. We know that both of them are here. And they seem to be inseparable. But one is devastating to the other. And we also know that Abraham's covenant was given. We have this given element. Grace element. That is in Abraham's covenant. Galatians 3.19 What then is the purpose of the law? Well... We've only just begun to answer this. You can go ahead and sing the Karen Carpenter song now to yourselves. You never heard we've only just begun? Oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. The law was added, it says, because of sin. Law added because of sin. What's implied there? If there was no sin, the law is valueless. The law was added. Oops. 
the law is added was added with the seed. Now let me put that. Let me fix that. I didn't do that very well. The law was added until the seed. Okay? And we know the seed is Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15, Galatians 3.16. So let me say it in a better way. The law was added until the seed who is Christ should come. So the coming of the seed and the law have a relationship. Now we have a rut row. Here comes Galatians 3.16 to the party now. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. So Christ made the promises to himself and Abraham. Let me repeat that in case it slipped by you. Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. So Christ has the promises made to him and Abraham does. So the promises were not only made to Abraham with regard to salvation, they were also made to Christ. So Christ made the promises to himself and to Abraham, which everyone should remember is exactly what Christ said in Genesis 22.16. He says, at Genesis 22:16, as you know, that is where we have the Isaac, uh, Abraham, and Ram in the thicket. By myself, on myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord says, by myself, on myself, I have sworn, or vowed. The point is, yea, a point, the promises of eternal life were made to both Abraham and to the seed of the woman, which is Christ. Why has Christ done that? Why did he do it? The promises of eternal life, again, made to both. Why this process? Why are the angels in the process? What do they have to do with this? Why why is Moses the mediator? Why do we even need a mediator question? Now the real difficulty comes arrives. Appointed through the angel, through the angels, by the hand of an e- a mediator. Let me see if I can recap this so it makes some kind of sense. The law was added because of sin until the seed of the woman comes because the seed was given a promise and the law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. How many questions we got now? That's just one verse in Galatians 3.19. Wait till Galatians 3.20 is on the list before answering how many questions we got. Galatians 3.20 just adds to the... Deluge. The angels were delegated by the Lord God who created them to enter into the mechanism by which the law was given to the nation of Israel. Did that make any sense? So let me say it this way. God took the angels that were in heaven. I believe they're the faithful angels. I'm assuming they're the faithful angels. God takes the Lord God takes them and says, come with me when we're going to give the law to Moses and you are going to give the law to Moses. So I'll have it in my right hand. We'll get to that in a minute. Oops, right hand. Don't you learn that in kindergarten? I have it in my right hand. I'm going to give it to you, and you're going to give it to Moses. 
Why are they in between all of that? The angels. And the line of custody is the Lord God, the angels, again, the faithful angels, I'm assuming. Only them. And that's because of Deuteronomy 33.2. So, line of custody is the Lord God, the faithful angels, Moses the mediator, and then to Israel. A whole bunch of wise now, right there. Galatians 3.20 reveals that Moses, as the mediator between God and Israel, is required because there's multiple parties. You have to have a mediator if you have multiple parties. And we have God, we have the angels, and we have Israel. So we have multiple parties. And whenever you have multiple parties, you need a mediator. Some, an intercessor. A mediator is not necessary at Genesis 15. Why not? There was no mediator at Genesis 15. Abraham's knocked out, if you want to think of it that way. He's completely comatose. So he's not participating as a mediator at all. Because there's not multiple parties, is there? Who's the party? A mediator is not necessary in Genesis 15 because God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. What's that? Say that again. That's right. That's right. God is one. Genesis 15. Deuteronomy 6.4. Genesis 1.26. Genesis 3.22. John 10.30. Matthew 3.16.17. Genesis 15. 17 through 18, God is one. So we don't need a mediator. Because the party is it's made to the seed himself. He is actually giving the promise to himself. No mediator. God himself, God alone, ratified his promise to Abraham. There, therefore, no mediation. No compromise or negotiation is relevant. It's a gift. It's grace. We don't have to have somebody come in and negotiate a gift that is freely given. It's exempted from mediation. Law, however, what what happens with law? It demands a mediator. Grace does not have a mediator. Why is that ultimately is the question to be resolved. Why does law require a mediator? Again, if there are conditional aspects to salvation, and many, 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 the, the gate is wide here, many, many, many insist that there is conditional aspects to salvation, especially those who profit from their assertions. Then, see, I stand up here trying to tell everybody salvation is a free gift. How much money have I made doing that? Not a lot. How's that for a euphemism? But the people who say law is conditional upon their interpretation of your salvation, how much money do they make? They have, they have huge facilities. They, they put themselves in a position of mediation because they are using law and grace. If there are conditional aspects to salvation, then salvation is buried in minutia. Uh, and that's the tactics and the addendums and uh, all of the, the systems that the Pharisees had at the time of Christ. They buried salvation into all of these rules and regulations. Uh, and that is why Christ cleared them out. Why he said, woe to you. Why he cleaned the temple of all of this additional addendums that are made to the salvation that was given to Abraham. And Genesis 15 had been corrupted to the point where it wasn't recognizable. Salvation with thousands of attachments is not salvation. It is a pretense. You add one law to salvation and you have leprosy. 
if you have all of this garbage attached to your to salvation, the message of salvation. See, it's so beautiful, it's so clean, it's so perfect. And yet they just pour sewage all over it. And then what you have is a structure through which none are saved because nobody ever gets saved through those systems. No one can ever fulfill them. No one can go through all the addendums and get them all perfect. They'll lie. They will lie. But they haven't done it. They lie to themselves. You can't argue with them because you're not arguing with them. They're arguing with themselves. So what we see today, what we saw at the time of the Pharisees, is an illusion of salvation. And hopefully everyone listening today, both of you, hi, uh, you recognize that I have again described the Genesis 3, 4, Job 1, Job 2, Psalm 10, Ezekiel 28, 16, lie of Satan, because the lie of Satan is a works-based methodology as well as an accusation against the character of God. Okay. Deuteronomy 33.2. We've got to throw some of that. Let me get that in there. These are the final words of Moses. Now, it's obvious that Moses had to give them to somebody because he... He's described as already dead in 33. So we can figure out who might have, who might have got them. Most people think Joshua wrote this. And here's what he says. Now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, he doesn't say, and he says, does it? And he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of his holy ones. Now, there's no word in the Hebrew for, uh, for billions. But we know the holy ones, who they are. From his right hand came a fiery law for them, the them being Israel. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hands. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your word. Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And Moses was a king, it says. He was a king in Jeshurun. When the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. The Lord came to Sinai, Mount Sinai, Seir, and Paran, the mountains of the law. Those are the mountains of the law. And the Lord came with an uncountable number of his holy angels, which means faithful angels. Now, do I think that when this law was handed out that Satan and his demonic uh, uh, infantry, if you want to call them that, would have paid, paid attention? Absolutely, he pays attention. The fiery law was in the right hand of God. Oh my goodness, we got the right hand now to deal with. What's the obvious question? If it's in his white right hand, yeah, what's in his left? So he comes with it comes on the right, and we know that the right hand of God uh, is Christ Himself. First Peter three twenty two. We know that He's the right hand of God. It says so. Mark uh, sixteen nineteen Acts two thirty three Acts seven thirty five seven fifty five through fifty six of Acts Romans eight thirty four Hebrews ten twelve 
Colossians 3, 1, Psalm 1, 18, 15 through 16. Christ is the right hand of God. So who is the left hand of God? Well, lots of positions. Somebody's the left hand of God. He's got two hands. The right hand of God has the law. Now, isn't that interesting? The fiery law. Why is the law, the fiery law, why is it fiery law? And why is it in the right hand? We know that fire connotes holiness and purification and testing, Exodus 20.20. It also uh, is presence, the presence of God, Exodus 3.2. It's judgment, uh, the burning judgment, Revelation 20.10-20.15, Daniel 7.9-10, Genesis 15.17. The seraphim are fiery also. They're the burning ones, uh, Isaiah 6.1-7. So we got that part. And certainly the law is an instrument tied to judgment and the holiness of God. But back to our central question. Why are the faithful angels, all of them, uncountable number, why are they at the place that the law is given and they're the ones that give it to Moses? What what are they contributing? Why are they there? What's their job? Something, I say it as many times as I can. I have an event or condition traceable to a cause. What is the cause of the faithful angels that puts them in this position of handing the law to Moses? It's obviously more than ceremonial splendor and grandeur. The law, again, which is a curse, Galatians 3.13, Galatians 3.10. The works of the law are under a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why is the law a curse? So, it is indeed. It is indeed. Because nobody can keep it. But to reposition everything. At Mount Sinai, the three mountains of the law, I have God. I have his right hand. So I have the triunity of God. I have all this fire. And I have the angels. And I have Moses. And I have the nation of Israel. And again, the law goes from God. It's right hand to the angels, to Moses, to Israel. That's got to be explained. I believe. I think it's very important. As always, these kinds of things are critically important. But so again, why is the law of curse? Answering this is going to be very helpful. It's going to bring clarity once you've got that handled. What it's really doing. How does Jesus Christ crucified become a curse for us? Because it says he does. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21-23. Genesis 2 9's now here. Which tree? He's hung on a tree. Which tree was it? 1 Samuel 17 54, John 19 17, Mark 15 22, Matthew 27 5. What did I just rattle off there? Genesis 2 9 is the two trees. Which tree is he hung on? Are those kids causing us problems? No? You can if you think they're causing us problems. I can hear them. Oh, that's not easy to do that one. I I open it. Okay. Genesis 2.9 is the two trees. The tree of life and the tree of surely die. Eat from that tree, you surely die. So it's the tree of life and the tree of death. 1 Samuel 17.54, that is the skull of Goliath. John 19.17 is the place where David put the skull of Goliath. What's called Gol Goliath? Calvaria. Calvaria. 
Mark 15:22 is the same as John 19:17. Matthew 27:5 is with Judas hanging himself. Where did Judas hang himself? Where did Christ hang himself? Galatians 3:14 provides information to what and why Jesus Christ is doing at the place of Goliath's buried skull. He's hanging from a tree. And Jesus Christ, of course, is the tree of life. Revelation 22.2 he, revel- he is the tree of life manifested. He is the person that the tree of life portrays. The tree of life in Genesis 2.9. That's the one that testifies of him who is life itself. And that adds explanation to the Matthew 26.26.29 Eating the bread of life. John 6, 32 through 33, drinking the life blood, the living blood. John 11, 25, Leviticus 17, 11. All of those things assemble to create a description. They disclose some of the purposes of Christ's crucifixion, the whys of the crucifixion. Are you struggling with that? It sounds like it's okay now. Okay, you can't lock it. I have to shut it to make it lock. It pops into place, unfortunately, until the summer thaw is complete. Okay? More things for me to fix. Obviously, Jesus Christ has no sin. Therefore, the law has no hold. It can't curse him. Death cannot hold him who has no corruption. Psalm 16, 8-11, Acts 2, 24-27. Yet somehow... The Holy One becomes a curse hanging on a tree. And I have long submitted that the tree of life manifested, that's him, that's Christ, placed himself on the place of the Genesis 2, 9 tree of life. The obvious is obvious. It's what he's doing. Anyway, Christ in some such way transfers the curse of the law, the curse, to himself. How does he do that? And I'm saying to you, we see that portrayed, that, that he's taking the curse of the law and taking it upon himself at his crucifixion. That is portrayed at Genesis 15. When you look at what's going on in Genesis 15, there's the crucifixion. Obviously the crucifixion would be there. It has to be there. It's the central uh, aspect of the promise. But where is it? Where is the crucifixion being portrayed? And Matthew 26, 36 through 45, that of course is the cup of Gethsemane where he drinks the cup. It's, it's in my opinion that Abraham sees this. He sees the transferring of the curse of the law onto Christ. He sees all of what's going on in Genesis 15. He sees the transference, the horror of the cup, the sorrow of the cup, Matthew 26, 37. The sorrow and the horror are not the same. The sorrow is different from the horror. Maybe uh, more on that later, maybe. That's John 11.35, John 11.43. Galatians 3.14 explains that Christ's transmission on the cross, taking the curse onto himself. The curse that, And what does the curse bring you? The curse comes because of sin. I cannot separate the curse from sin and death. So I could say all three. Curse, sin, death. Christ transmits that to him. And that's associated with the Genesis 15:6 blessing of Abraham that is extended to the Gentiles. The promise of the Spirit is received through faith. 
And here's where the HDRP is required to state the anti-heretical protection statute. Jesus Christ holds time in his hand. And it's a small little dot. You can't even see it because his hand is so big. It's infinite. He sees all things motionless if he wants to, if he wills. He accomplishes his redemptive work outside of the bounds of time. His redemptive work is not subject to time. Because being in authority of time, he can do that. And he does do it. So, do not place the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles inside of time. Because it says that in Galatians, that one of the purposes of Christ is that he is bringing the blessing of Abraham and it is extended to the Gentiles. Again, Galatians 3.14. But don't put that inside of time. Doing that that would imply that God excludes or he neglects, does not provide access to salvation for those who predate Genesis 15 or predate the cross or predate the sacrificial system or whatever misguided concept you may discover on tube face or some religious blog. Okay? So don't put the blessing of Abraham extended to the Gentiles in a chronological line. You can't do it. Well, you can do it, but you would not be correct. Okay, Galatians 3.14, the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us then that an element of the crucifixion is the receiving of the unconditional blessing of Abraham. And another aspect is that the Abrahamic blessing of eternal salvation is received by faith. And the third is that it's going to include the Gentiles. That's the great mystery that Paul knew that no other prophet had ever known. Revealed to Paul. That's three more whys of the crucifixion. Okay, so far so good. Now the law is a curse for us because of Romans 5.12 through 5.15. Or 5.14 probably. 5.15 would work as well. That's the sin of Adam. Death spread to all men through Adam. Through one man. Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the offense. So, the blessing of Abraham is not like what happened. How are, what's, the, what's going on? For if by one man Adam's offense many died, much more the grace of God. And the gift by, uh, by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So, Adam's offense many died. But the gift is not like the offense. I see the hands. They're different. And can I emphasize the free gift? Let me read. But the free gift is not like the offense. Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man abounded to many. I can't, can I emphasize the free gift, the grace of God enough? No, I can't. Look at the world we live in. I can't do it enough. The law is a curse because no one can keep, no one can obey, no one can perform, no one can adhere, no one can discharge the law. I don't care what you say. You can't do it. You're not doing it. Quit lying to yourself and everyone around you. Stop. Get help. The Bible clearly says you can't do it. The law is a curse because it's hopeless. The impossibility of the law is screaming out of Scripture everywhere. Yet many lie, many pretend to be holy, but none are holy. No, not one. Romans 3, 10 through 18. Except there is one. The one man. Jesus Christ, the God-man. 
He can drink the cup. He's the Holy One, Psalm 16.10. He's the Holy Thing, Luke 1.35. The angels came at Deuteronomy 33.2 because they knew there was a problem. What's the problem with the angels? The faithful angels have a problem. So they're there. And their job is to take the law and give it to Moses. That's going to help. That's got something to do with this. They did not know the solution to their problem until the crucifixion. And maybe they started to get some insight at Matthew 4, Luke 4, when they ministered to Christ. Maybe they do there. Mark 1, when they see him with the animals. Maybe they figure some out there. Maybe at John 3, when we have the baptism of Christ and the triunity of Christ being exposed. Genesis 126. Maybe they put things together there. Maybe Matthew 26, 36 through 45. With Genesis 15, and then that proclamation of Peter 3, 18, 19, 1 Peter. Maybe they started to figure it out. Because they're not, they're not like us. They have seen things that we have never seen. Adam also realized the problem, the dilemma. A sinful man cannot escape because the sin always gets worse and one spot of sin kills you. You have one spot. You're dead. The leprosy spreads quickly. That's why he put on the fig leaves. He understood that principle. The angels were in turmoil. Evil angels, satanic followers, were one-third of the angelic realm now. Heaven has been in unceasing tension and will stay there until Revelation 12 in the final battle. So you have, you have this tremendous anxiety in heaven. Through the, you know, the angelic realm, you could say this, I think, accurately, has collapsed at the time. Uh, it was in ruin, and the angels, the faithful angels, passed the holiness standard to Moses, the Deuteronomy 18.15 mediator. They're conceding something when they do that. What are they conceding? They know the law. Now the law has been printed out and handed to them, and they're going to hand it to Moses. They don't, they know it, but they're going to give it up to Moses. Obviously, at least one element of all of that is a concession that my, mankind through the human kingdom will be the solution to the angelic fall. That's something that's revealed in Genesis 1.26. To rephrase that, the angels are set aside here. They take themselves out. They're, set, they're setting themselves apart. Here, you take it. Think of the law as a hot potato. It's on fire. It's on fire. I give it to the angels. They give it to Moses. They can't handle it. I find it quite interesting that the angels brought the law. What's the other option? Law and promise. Why didn't they bring grace? They didn't bring grace. They brought law to Moses. That speaks volumes. I keep repeating. I need to repeat. Galatians 3 is definitive, as is Romans 1.17, Romans 3.10-18. The law is not the solution to free will sin and will never be the solution. The law is the vehicle that directs to the only solution. It's a billboard. 
It's advertising. It has no value other than that. And the only solution is the person of Christ who freely, willfully gives his blood. Keep in mind that the fallen angels are never going to be resurrected. They don't get resurrected. So resurrection isn't... They, resurrection is the key to the solution of sin. There must be resurrection. We can't resurrect angels. I can, I guess, but that's not described in Scripture in any way. They are uh, outside of the resurrection criteria. They have rejected salvation, the fallen angels. That's back to Genesis 3.14. Because you have done this, you shall eat death forever. That's, of course, the, the Matthew 25.41, lake of fire. There's nothing but death in the lake of fire. And you're going to eat death forever. You're going, be, you're going to be marinated in death, covered in death. There's nothing but death there. Not, not a single photon of life. light. So they rejected because you have done this. And that comes after the fall of the angelic host in my timeline. It seems to me, how am I doing? A few minutes. The Genesis 15, the take me there, has to refer to Galatians 3.19 and Deuteronomy 33.2. In other words, somewhere in Genesis 15 is Galatians 3.19, the angels giving the hot potato, the law, the fiery law, to Moses. That has to be there. And Moses taking it at those three mountains, uh, that has to be in Genesis 15, the angels' concessional act of appointing the law. And if I'm right, where is it? Where in Genesis 15 is the angels giving the law to Moses? It's got to be there. And there's one of each animal. Isn't that interesting? Except there are two birds. And I got these vultures. And there's the right hand of God to deal with, which introduces, as we said, the left. And I got sheep and goats, Matthew 25, 32, 33. If you're on the left side, how's that working for you? If you're a goat. Not working so good. We've got Ecclesiastes 10.23. Throughout the church's history, many have asked if Satan sat on the left side of the throne before his fall. Is that what's happening here? Can we make that point? Now, Matthew 20 through, uh, Matthew 20, 20 through 28 becomes a major promise. Problem. Gosh, what the problem. The cup is in Matthew 20, 20 through 28. Baptism is there. And they're symbols of suffering and death. Matthew 20, 22. The Lord God of creation says to the mother of James and John, you don't know what you ask. Oops. Because what was she asking? She said, I want my sons, one of them to be on the left and one of them will be on the right. And he looks at her and says, you don't know what you're asking. I think, and James and John respond when he says, are you able uh, to drink the cup and have the baptism of death, the cup of suffering and the cup of death? Do you know what they say? Both of them. This is John the Apostle. They both say, we are able which is exactly what the law, the law people say. We are able to keep the law, right? We are able. The most ignorant statement, perhaps, in the whole of Scripture. 
Finally for today, everybody loves finally. I mentioned last week, and the train has showed up. I mentioned last week the difficulty of the narrow gate, Matthew seven thirteen through 14, and the wide gate. The narrow gate is grace. The wide gate is, uh, is the law. The grace gate is the Genesis 15 Abrahamic promise gate. The, the take me gate. The wide gate is the Mosaic law. Mosaic law describes all law. All law is a Mosaic law, some form or the other. The wide gate is the law works gate. Uh, and you, you get that through your head, you'll start to look at now the narrow gate. What is this narrow gate? Matthew 7.14 says, There are few who find the narrow gate. What does that mean? Now, is this a salvation? Is he saying there are few that found found salvation? That can find salvation, and the, the the narrow gate is confined. It's girded. It says, "The wide gate is the gate to destruction." Many willingly go through the wide gate. Do you hear that word? Many willingly go through the wide gate. They know it's destruction. They go anyway. So, what is the wide gate and the narrow gate? How narrow is narrow? Some people say, "Well, only I'm getting through." I listen, I've seen people say the only people that are going to be saved are in this church. That's happened all throughout the 1900s. You, the only way you get through the narrow gate is if you have a particular sign. You say something, you can do something. You have to proclaim, you have to perform a trick in order to get through the narrow gate. Yeah, it's yes, you have to perform. If you have to perform, then you're you're no longer in the narrow gate, you're in the wide gate. The narrow how narrow is narrow, how few is few, how many is many. Next week, we'll fight this again. Thanks for struggling through all of that, both of you. They're still awake.